0: While that buzzing sound might strike fear into the hearts of some folks, it's also the sound of food creation. Whether you're snacking on an apple or a burger right now, you can thank the bees for it. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science Podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. This month's topic is bees, because I don't know about you, but I'm suddenly seeing them all over the place. Fuzzy bumblebees on flowers, sleeker honeybees with their little fur coats, and of course we're ushering in the time of backyard barbecues where the hornets and wasps get just as much delicious food as the rest of us. Today's guests are Paul and Penny, a local beekeeper and a master gardener, and they're here to tell us all about bees and how we can bring them into our lives in the best kind of way. Paul is a beekeeper and Penny is a gardener. Do you two want to give little bits of intro to the listeners as to who you are?
1: I'm a master beekeeper certified in the state of Montana and Washington State. Been doing it for almost 13 years now and been teaching apprentice classes and mentoring and penny?
2: Well, when I retired, I needed something to do. So I've, I've always loved a garden. Ever since I was a kid, my mom and dad always had like a garden and raspberry patches and all that. So I was always out there picking and eating. And then I joined the Master Gardeners and went to class and just met so many cool people that I decided to become one. I've been a Master Gardener since 2013. And just love the whole idea of sharing information and learning and helping people understand what their part in the world is and how they can make a little small difference and see some great benefit. And the fact that he's a beekeeper, I'm a master gardener, it blends together. That's me.
0: So how many kinds of bees are there in the world?
1: Well, in the world, there's about 20,000 different species of bees. And in Washington State, where we're at, there's about 200, 200 to 400 bees. They go all the way from one that's uh, less than a quarter of an inch in size, and it flies 25 miles an hour, so you hardly ever see it, all the way to our new Asian Hornet that was uh, just imported illegally in the state from some cargo or something that's almost three and a half inches big. They're about a half to a third the size of a hummingbird. So that kind of gives you an idea of how big they are.
0: Too big. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many live in a nest? Like, how how big is the nest if they're that big?
1: The nest they did find was actually pretty big. Our Department of
2: Agriculture is on it, though. They they got in and trapped them and got the hive, and they're on the lookout.
0: Asian giant hornets get their murder hornet name because they attack honeybees. They want their hives, and so they go in and decapitate all of the honeybees. Not so good. Giant hornet nests are usually about a foot tall and are built into the ground or in trees. This past October, the Washington State Department of Agriculture eradicated a nest in northern Washington and found that it had about 500 hornets, all in different stages of their life cycle. The wildest part of the story is that they found the nest by attaching a radio tracker to one of the hornets and then tracked it back to the nest. So you said there was 2 to 400 types of bees in Washington, right?
1: Yes. You know, like bumblebees, uh Carpenter bees, leafcutter bees, mason Mason bees, or or orchard bees. All different sizes.
0: How many of the species that we have here aren't native?
1: Well, the honeybee is not a native United States. It was brought over during the pilgrims. The original bees were actually a black bee. And then later on, they imported the uh, Italians and the Cardiolean bees and that. And then in about 1922 or so, there was a disease that was coming out of England. So it's illegal to import any more bees into the United States.
0: Interesting. Okay. So to keep diseases from traveling.
1: Correct. But for migration of bees, as a constant migration of bees from one, one state to another, like the almond fields down in California, they have almost... 60% of the commercial bees, 60 70% of the commercial bees are in California, just during that almond season to pollinate. They used to bring them in on 747s. Oh,
0: wow. So I guess that, I mean, that leads pretty well into the next question. We see lots of bees in the spring and the summer, but not at all really in the winter. Why is that?
1: The honeybee usually starts flying about 55 degrees. They're kind of cold-blooded. They never hibernate They're in the hive in the winter and they're alive and awake and everything, but they're they're so slow. What they do is they form a cluster in that hive and they're keeping each other warm and that and moving to the food that they've stored from the summer. So you won't see the bees come out until the weather's warm enough for them to be able to be active.
0: When they're in there keeping themselves warm in the winter, is that just because of their own body heat that keeps it warm or do they have to do anything to keep it warmer?
1: What the cluster actually does is they'll be on the comb of honey, which is their food. And some of the bees, they disconnect their wing muscles and they vibrate and they wow. get that heat going. And then as the bees on the outside get cold, they move to inside the cluster and the ones that are on the inside move to the outside as they slowly move to the honey sources. And what happens a lot of times if it gets super, super cold and the honey is too far away, the bees are so legeric that they can't move to where the food is. And then they'll starve because they can't get to the food.
2: For beekeepers, you try to set it up so the food source is close to them and monitor what's going
1: on. Yeah, it takes at least 60 pounds of honey left on the hive to turn around and get a hive through the winter. And we usually put a lot more than that in just to be safe.
0: Now I'm so, I have so many questions about (laughs) beekeeping in the winter. How many pounds of honey do you normally get out of a year? And so then like, versus like how much you have to put back into the hive in the winter to keep them going?
1: In a good year, in a good location, you can pull a hundred pounds of honey off of a hive and still leave them what they need. No, there's several different techniques we do. Uh, sometimes we leave them a little less honey, but we have what we call supplemental feeding, like candy boards and stuff like that, which we put in to replace what we take. And we also have regimens that we do after we take the honey that turns around and gives them back some product that works as a honey substitute for them to eat.
0: So there's like lots of different ways to mitigate, oh, you still want the honey... But also, they're your bees and you want to keep them going over the winter. Yes,
1: we could, we could talk that for hours on the different, <laughs> different ways to take care of bees, from natural beekeeping to commercial beekeeping. It's all over the place.
0: So what does a day in the life of a bee look like?
1: That's a good question. Well, that's a good question because each bee has a different job. When a bee is hatched and comes out of their cell for the first time, her first task that she does is she goes back into her cell and starts cleaning it so they can lay another egg in there to do her replacement. As the bee gets older and older, it takes different tasks in the hive. It might be feeding the new brood and preparing it, and then some bees return into mortuary bees. Their job is that bees are really clean animals. If anything dies in the hive, they'll take it out of the hive and drop it off the entrance or fly it out and drop it off. Then some bees become guard bees and some are taking care of the queen. So there's very many stages they go through in their life as they age. And then their final part of their life is to turn around and be a forager. And a forager can go out to five miles to get either nectar or pollen. And what's interesting about the foragers when they go out is if they're going for nectar, they only go to one type of flower at that time. They don't go from a dandelion to a daisy to this. They'll do dandelions and then they'll bring it back. And then the next time they go out, they might be doing daisies or whatever they're doing. If they're bringing pollen, they're just going out and getting pollen and then bringing it back.
0: Do you know why they do that versus hopping from flower to
1: flower? Nobody knows the exact reason. It's been studied over and over and over, but it's probably just efficiency learned over decades.
0: Got to keep some mysteries alive. (laughs) You got it. Why are bees an important part of our ecosystem?
1: If you look at all the pollination that they do, whether it's a honeybee or a mason bee or whatever, your produce at your stores would be a lot less. You would have a lot less options. Even if you look at a hamburger, well, you think about the alfalfa bee and that that turns around and pollinates the alfalfa crop to give them the seed and grow that. If you don't have the alfalfa out there, you're sure not going to have a whole bunch of hamburger because, you know, you need alfalfa <laughs> oh, the for the, alpha for the cows. cows. You look at the percentage of what those bees do and our food resources that we need. It got so bad in certain areas of China, they were so bad with their chemicals and that that they killed most of their bees. So what they have is they actually have workers that have to go up into trees and pollinate their fruit by hand. If you look at that, they're very, very important for our food sources. We think we have food shortages now, but if you don't have your native bees and your pollinator bees out there doing their job, a lot of stuff we wouldn't have.
2: Also, add to that is that the native pollinators do such a fantastic pollination job, actually better than honeybees. They don't care if it's a little drizzly, a little chilly outside. They're used to the climate wherever they are, and they're used to native plants. So that's why we recommend try to add some native plants to your garden. But the pollination also not only creates the fruit, but creates the seed. And the seed becomes food for other wildlife. This big circle of life that happens where you you pull the plug on one or two things and everything suffers. And we like to eat.
0: (laughs) I definitely like to eat. So to continue with the thread of planting things and native species and whatnot, if I wanted to plant a garden that made bees happy, what would I plant?
2: Bees like, they like certain colors. It's best to plant things in groupings, like what Paul was saying, that if they're going out for nectar, they're going to go to a certain plant. Like dandelions, we just kind of mow around them (laughs) to leave the clusters because that's what they're going to go after. So, in your garden, you're going to want anything with yellow or blue or white in a nice open face that's easy for them to get to. The honeybees, I don't think their tongue is all that
1: long. It's not that big.
2: It's a short
1: tongue. It's like squash. Squash, you need a a bumblebee to do squash.
2: Squash needs vibration pollination. They get in there and it has to be pollinated several times for it to take. Otherwise, you get funky-looking squash that don't quite mature if it doesn't get pollinated correctly.
0: That would explain a lot of my gardening squash
2: (laughs) We need more bees!
0: Bees can get nectar and pollen from flowers in a couple ways. They can use their tongues, or they can buzz and use that vibration to shake the pollen out of a flower. Bumblebees use buzz pollination, and it turns out that about 6% of flowers and flowering plants need to get pollinated this way.
2: Bees like dandelions, clover, um, asters, have an, anything like a daisy, like an open petal. Something else that happens with bees and actually all pollinators, that the flower blossoms give off a heat and a UV light that the pollinators can see. And they're like, that's where the juice is down at the bottom. Or I, it almost looks like a runway at an airport. The bees' eyes will see arrows and a nice hot center or something to go, that's where I need to go to get my lunch. And try not to get the hybridized flowers because they're the blooms are kind of complicated and doubled up. So it's hard to get to find out where the the good stuff is. And they're sometimes bred for showiness, but not nutrition. So pollen and nectar may not be there.
1: Another thing is. Don't just plant vegetables. Plant your intermix your flowers in with your vegetable rows. So you want you want some attraction to them. Say, hey, we're over here, you know. So then they come and they they see it because once a bee finds something, they'll go back to the hive and they say, hey, if you go to the left, to the right, so many miles or whatever, here's your garden and there's a lot of good stuff over there. <laughs> Because that's just the way they go back. They, they communicate where, where to actually go through what they call a wiggle dance inside the hive. It says go 20 feet that way, 30 feet that way. As there's been studies going where they've put samples out and the bees come back to it within an inch or two. Yeah. And those hives are a mile and a half away.
2: That's fascinating. Make sure you plant a variety. Because you don't just want burgers and fries all the time. You start feeling sick. So. Give them lots of choices. It'll help them stay a little healthier and don't spray anything
1: toxic. We just heard a case this morning where somebody was out spraying all their dandelions because they didn't want them in the field. And the neighbor was saying, well, all my bees are in front of the hives with their tongue out. Well, that's why. They're out there getting dandelions of the first uh, food for them in in the spring when they when nothing else comes out. The dandelions is the first one. Well, they sprayed. They came out. They took the, the poison in, and they passed away.
0: We just need to bring dandelions back into fashion again. And make that's them right. <laughs>
1: Think of a golf course or somebody's lawn. Back in the old days, you know, we used to pride ourselves when we had a little clover in that. And nowadays, you see, call this guy in, he's going to spray chemicals all over my lawn, and it's a perfectly green lawn, no weeds or anything in it. Well, to a bee, that's desert. So you have places like a golf course, that's a desert. There's nothing there for them. As we turn around and take more and more land from farmland into urbans, there's not that much there for them anymore. Also
2: have a water source, like a real shallow dish of some kind. Throw some rocks or pebbles in it because they will drink, and they, but they can slip in and not be able to get out of the water. Any like marbles, anything like that. And for the native pollinators, have a little patch of soil that is not covered with mulch. Because a lot of the native pollinators nest in the ground. Over 70% of them nest in the ground. So you want a little water, a little dirt or soil, some pretty flowers or even your herbs they love herbs the flowers that are on the rosemary and oregano they love it love it it all gives them something and you want to cover spring to late fall and there are certain plants that do well in each of those seasons so they can stuff their bellies and be ready for winter some of the flowers that you can think about for late summer and fall would be an aster lupin, oregano sedums There's one called Autumn Joy that once it puts up its flower clusters, they last a long, long time. And then daisies are wonderful. And all of your herbs are late bloomers.
1: And the one thing I love to do is after our broccoli is harvested, the heads are off. I leave the plant going. And then it comes up and you see all the little yellow flowers. Well, I found out the yellow flowers are good in salad, but the bees love it. They, uh-huh. they get uh, nectar in that often, so I'm taking care of two things, a little bit for a salad and the bees are being taken care of and attracted to the garden.
2: And the honey does not oh. taste like nothing no. <laughs>
0: That was going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> nope, doesn't hurt it a bit. Okay, I have two questions and they may be related, they may not be related. Penny, do you have a favorite flower that you like to plant in pollinator gardens?
2: Oh, I was going to say Aster. That is one that's just a long lived bloom into the fall. But I also am kind of leaning more towards hardy fuchsia. The one we have here at the house blooms till it's really cold, and these bumblebees get in there and just suck up that nectar like it's nobody's business. They're a little heavy for it. You know, the branch kind of droops down. Yeah, I love those hardy fuchsias and asters and uh, calendula. Forgot all about that. Calendula lasts all summer long.
0: Okay, my next question is for Paul. Maybe related, maybe not related. Paul, do you have a favorite honey flavor that comes from a plant?
1: Well, I'll call it variety honey because honey from our hives is always the best. But uh, the reason we call it variety honey or wildflower honey is because bees travel <laughs> through so many flowers in that, that uh, it's a mixture. Blackberry honey is probably my favorite. You just gotta make sure you get in the hive when they're when they're harvesting blackberry honey before they mix it up with everything else.
2: <laughs> if you want to know more about setting up a pollinator garden, you can go to Facebook and look for pollinator garden tc, because that was my master gardener project with some help from a couple of beekeepers and some master gardeners. So you'll see lots of photos of what kind of flowers they like and even pictures of different pollinators on the blossom and hummingbirds and And we also teach a class for the local master gardeners. That's a lot of fun. We're around.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have anything else you would like to add?
2: I think
1: we covered most of it.
2: Yeah. Check us out on Facebook. And remember, our master gardeners can help you with any of your questions about bees and planting. And get out there and plant something.
0: There are links to that Facebook group, as well as a ton of other resources that Paul and Penny sent my way, on my website. We also talked about a lot of things in this interview that I unfortunately had to cut for time. But you can find Pollen Penny's notes and all the other resources at goforthandscience.com/podcast. And now for the episode recap. In the winter, bees hunker down and crowd together in their hives to keep themselves warm. But in the spring and summer, when it starts to get warmer and their food pops out, here they come. There are native species of bees in the US, but a lot of the ones we're familiar with, like honeybees, were actually imported to help with pollination. At this point though, Both are good, because pollination is good. But the native species are better adapted to the climates that we have around here. The invasive species you do have to watch out for are the Asian giant hornets, because they're not so friendly to our other bees. If you want to support bees in your own backyards and communities, you can plant a pollinator garden. Bees like blue, white, and yellow flowers that have flat openings for landing. They also like a variety of different plants but make sure those varieties are planted in clusters of each type so they can get to all of the same plants in the same pollen run. They also like patches of dirt for nesting and shallow water with rocks or marbles in it so they can climb out if they fall in. And of course, they don't like pesticides, so check in with your local gardeners to see how you can manage your lawns and gardens in ways that are healthy for the bees. Extra sources I used in this episode, aside from all the wonderful knowledge of Penny and Paul, are the Washington State Department of Agriculture's page on the Asian Giant Hornet and Mario Vallejo-Marine's 2019 paper, Buzz Pollination, Studying Bee Vibrations on Flowers. I hope you all learned something fun about bees and gardens today, and as always, thanks for listening.